Hey guys, this is Pastor Zach, and you are listening to Sermon Notes here at HPC. Psalm 23. So if you weren't here with us last week, uh, it is required reading to go back. And, and the reason I say that, I'm not even joking. Uh, I know with the seven-letter rampage, it was kind of like, hey, you could show up for any one of these letters and still get like a really cool picture of the Father's heart and something specific. But unlike the seven-letter rampage, Psalm 23 uh, is very much um, prerequisited by the order of the preceding verses. So you are not going to walk in here this morning and get four, five, and six without having a grasp on one, two, and three. I'm going to give you a nutshell version of one, two, and three, but I would encourage you to go back and watch last week. So a couple of things that we talked about in order to make this order stick, and again, it's all about order. All of scripture is about order. The revival of the father that we're in the middle of right now is about order, 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 order. And so, and I can hear him as a judge demanding order in the court. And there's always order in his court, but our courts sometimes lack in the area of order. Amen. And so we're watching as God is restoring order in homes, in families, in lives, in marriages, in kids. We're watching it in real time play out. And we either, every time the Holy Spirit confronts us and convicts us with an opportunity to um, sort of reinstate order as biblically prescribed, we have the opportunity to either run further into chaos or to get our stuff straight. Amen? And sometimes when he lets us run further into chaos, it's because we're not at our end yet. Things have to get worse before they can get better. I'm hoping that we're humble enough and receptive enough and obedient enough and discerning enough today to not have to go further down any road we don't need to go down, okay? So first of all, first and foremost, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack. I shall not want. And if you remember last week, we prefaced the whole verse, the whole chapter with the word because. Because the Lord is my shepherd. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. And when everything builds off of this foundation, things begin to take a different shape. So when he makes me lie down, we talked about how that word is the same word that's used first in Genesis where it says sin is crouching at the door. He makes me lie down. He applies pressure to get me into that place that if left to my own devices would be that of predatorial instinct, ready to pounce, ready to devour, ready to kill, which is the human condition. That's who we are. That's how we live. We're ready at a moment's notice to fight. But when he pushes us down, when he applies pressure in those green pastures, it's from a place of having already been fed, having already been sustained, and having been robbed of that, of that predatorial instinct that, that we use to prey on each other. He leads me beside still waters. We talked about how that word beside is perhaps better translated and more often understood as a pawn and how when the Holy Spirit leads us, instead of us trying to lead the Lord to our stormy seas, to our places of chaos and get him to do a miracle, he's leading us to quiet waters where he can then draw from us the supernatural. He can draw from us the miraculous, the signs and wonders that he longs to reveal through his people. The next thing uh, was that, oh, and we talked about um, him leading us, and that sometimes we lead ourselves beside still waters. And, and we talked about how um, in a spiritual sense and in other ways, in a, in a prescription sense, in a substance abuse sense, we will find ways to uh, bring peace into our lives. But if it's not him doing the leading, if it's us going out and seeking, we got the divining rod out, we're like, where are we going to find peaceful waters? We find something, and we tap into it, 
only to find that it's actually toxic and we're worse off than we were to begin with. Why? Because we led our search for still waters. But when he leads it, he brings us to still waters that brings the supernatural out in us. Now, we have to be led. Again, order, 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 order. And then we get to the line, he restoreth my soul. This is one of those chapters. How many of y'all revert back to King James when you're quoting Psalm 23? Yes, thank you. I see that hand. I see that hand. You're trying? No, dude, I love, I love King James, especially for this stuff. It's so much more meaningful, you know? It's like the closest thing to the original language you can get. <laughs> it's like almost foreign. Can you say foreign anymore? I don't even know. So anyway, then he restores my soul. I love the sound of that. The problem is I have to be led by him in order to arrive at a place of restoration for my soul. In order to ever begin to find healing for the inner things that are broken, the things that we were down here at the altar. It has to be him that leads us. It can't be, I'm going to come down to the altar because Pastor Zach said that if you've been through a divorce, I have to come down and pray it out. No. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit is compelling your inner man, your spirit man, to come and respond. And then my soul gets restored. He says, you lead me in paths of righteousness. You guide me in paths of righteousness. Why? Because the restoration of the soul does not equal the preservation of the soul. Restoration has an expiration unless there's preservation on the reservation. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm trying to keep it PC in here, but it's not working. You know? It just never does, Jamal. Lord, help us. Help us. Let me crunch up this cough drop for my wife. <laughs> he leads us in righteous paths because the righteous path is what keeps our soul restored. Now, some of us say, well, are you telling me if I get off the righteous path, then I'm going to hell? No. Why does everybody jump straight to that? That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what this is about. The path of righteousness preserves the restorative and regenerative work of our inner healing that he does. If we refuse to walk in those paths, we talked last week about how our walk with the Lord ends up looking more like a playground than a path. And every time he comes to call us, we run back to the thing that hurt us. We run back to the, the thing we keep falling off, the thing that we keep breaking an arm on, the thing that keeps sidetracking us. Lead us in paths of righteousness, Lord, for his name's sake. And that was kind of where we put the cherry on top temporarily because it's all about his name. There's no other name. It's not about your name. He does know his sheep by name, but nobody else knows his sheep's name because there's only one name that matters when it comes to sheep, and that is the name of the shepherd. Amen? Okay, good. So we have to keep going to Psalm 23, verse 4 through 6, okay? So if you're not there, get there, because this is where things take a turn for the ominous, all right? This is where things get dark, because up until now, these first three verses, they're like happy, they make me feel good, there's green pastures, there's still waters, there's soul-restoring stuff that's taking place, but suddenly... We come around the corner, and even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, right? You anoint my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Mm, just that F on the end. It just, it's just borderline ethereal. Let's stop right there and talk about this for just a second. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, First of all, that word walk is not walk like as I'm walking, like I got up and had to walk somewhere and I happened to walk through a dark place today. No. 
that word walking, it comes from this Hebrew word, yalak. And yalak, it, it speaks of like the walk of life, the manner in which we live. And the reason that our walk of life or the manner in which we live is in the valley of the shadow of death is because this may come as a shock to somebody, but we live in a broken world. We live in a broken world. And as I was first reading that, I got this sense that going all the way back to when David was writing this psalm, flash forward all the way to today, there is something about the people of God that wants to pull the blinders and the wool over our eyes and pretend like this world is something we should put hope in. And I want to tell you, if you've never heard it before, hear it from me. No, hear it from the Lord if you can. Get past me. When your hopes are that the world works out, you will be let down every time. When your hopes are in the world, when your plan, when you've got all your eggs in the world's basket, even if the, the, the outcome that you were thinking in your head was going to work, it doesn't work. It does not meet the requirements of the spiritual thing that's happening within you. And so we go from, from mountaintop to mountaintop with unmet expectations. We get more and more jaded and more and more disenchanted and more and more disillusioned by what doesn't add up because our hopes aren't in the right thing. And until we pull those hopes out of the world, well, if this thing works out, it's, it's really an immaturity is what it is. It's immaturity among believers that, that says, you know, well, if I can just get this, it's like, it's like people who are banking on winning the lottery. That's, that's exactly what it is. And you know what's crazy about that? I've heard, I've heard people say that the lottery is a tax on the poor, which is sad, but so true. Because when our hopes, and this is what's crazy, there, there are these shows that like do like the uh, reality TV of people who've won the lottery or have come into like bajillions of dollars. And what happens? Like this astronomical percentage of them end up taking their own life, end up impoverished, bankrupt, destitute, divorced, on the street. Why? Because their hope was in the world. And even when the hope worked out, the plan didn't. Even though I walk, even though my day-to-day -day walk, even though my life is in this broken world, I fear no evil. Okay, so let's talk about the valley of the shadow of death for a minute. And I'm apologizing now for those of you that struggle with all the metaphors that we use here. There's a lot of metaphors. It's a very metaphorical place. And the, it's atmospherically metaphorical, I would say. And we're thinking about changing all of our Fs to PHs because of it. But I, my wife says that I get the extra mile out of a metaphor, and it's true. But I feel like it's a God thing. So I wanted to just, the Lord, every time, as I was pulling back a layer, a layer, it's like the Lord just kept showing me stuff, 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 stuff about shadows and this valley business. And so maybe one of these lines will bear witness to your current state. If not, just, you know, bear with me. Number one, darkness only exists in a place where light is blocked. Darkness only exists in a place where light is blocked, wherever that is. If it's the bottom of the ocean floor, if it's the back 
of a, of a cave, if it's an outer space, darkness only exists where light is blocked. What that means is that we don't really walk in death, but we walk in its shadow. Notice the psalmist writing here, I walk in the valley of the shadow of death. The shadow. What that means is that death is of no consequence to us as believers, people who have the Spirit of God within us, who have accepted the truth of the gospel, have, call ourselves saved and have a real, real relationship with Jesus Christ. Not just a, a verse notification on your phone every morning, but there is a real intimacy with Jesus. Saints, death has no hold on us, and yet we still walk in its shadow. Yeah. Right? If you ever needed proof, I mean, there are streets that you can drive down. We were driving through Pawtucket last night, and it was like, I mean, the amount of money spent on Halloween decorations is like, wow, wow. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking you could probably move out of the ghetto in Pawtucket if you just hadn't <laughs> blown all your money at the Halloween Superstore. You know what I'm saying? I'm trying to, I think we just have an altar call right now, honest to God. I will buy back from you all of your Halloween decorations with church money. I'm just kidding. No, I said the ghetto. I said the ghetto. Anyway, the point is this. The point is this. We don't walk in death, but we do often walk in its shadow. Saints, shadows rise and fall. But the thing between you and the light, whatever stands between you and the light, whatever seeks to block the light from your life, okay, it doesn't ever get any bigger. It never changes. The shadow is what changes. And the shadow changes based on your position to the light. So that's why we can go through seasons of our lives where certain things seem enormous and all-consuming and overwhelming when that thing itself never got any more powerful. It never got any stronger. It never got any bigger than it ever was. But for some reason, all of a sudden, that thing just seems like it's a monster. Well, it's not. It can't be. What's happened is not only has that not changed, but the light behind it hasn't changed. What's changed is your position to that light. If you were here on Tuesday night, we talked about the, um, the establishing of David's throne in Hebron at the halfway point. And we talked about how we are at a time in the spirit, we're at a time between two times. And there, there is a dispensation that we are in where Satan is the prince of the power of the heirs of this world. But we know that there is a time coming when Jesus will ultimately sit on the throne and rule and reign. Amen? Come on, Paula's with me. Paula in the roll neck sweater every time. She's got it. But here's where we are right now. We're exactly where the mighty men were surrounding David in 1 Chronicles 12 when men of valor, men of strength, men of the sword and of the shield, men of battle were rising up and they were surrounding him 
in an effort to ensure David's assumption of the throne as God's rightful man for the job. And so as they get around him and as they're ensuring this happens and as the list is made of all the folks who show up, there's one set of names sort of unexpected. It's all these warriors. It's all these fighters, the men with the sword and the shield and this and valor and that. And then it says, and 200 men of the sons of Issachar. It says men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. It's interesting. What were those guys doing there? Because while so much of the church might be rising up to fight, it is absolutely imperative, saints, that we are also discerning of the seasons we're in. Because if we're not aware of the seasonal shift that has taken place, we may end up waging war against shadows. Things that never really had any power over us to begin with. You with me? The light of the world never changes. Only your position in that light. You see, we position ourselves, and then the Lord repositions us in different seasons so our world perceives shadows differently. Have you ever heard anybody say, oh, there's a grace on that person for such a time as this? Oh, there's a grace on them for that. People say about Ashley all the time, there's a grace on her to be my wife. You know, it's an extra measure. It's a double portion. There's a grace on this church to have me as pastor. There's a grace. You know, we talk about the grace, right? But I want to tell you what the grace really is. What the grace is, is it's a seasonal placement. For some of you, there was a grace on you to serve in his kids for half a Sunday. And then the grace lifted. Oh, pastor Holly, could you come up and preach, please? And then the grace lifted, and it's like, yeah, nah, it's not on me anymore. Sorry, Pastor. I just, I gotta, I'm, I want to serve in the women's ministry instead. Here's the deal. The Lord puts a grace on us to help us navigate through what would otherwise be an overshadowed place. Have you ever known anybody that was diagnosed with cancer, and, and the doctors are like, you know, it's just this little spot, we're going to have it removed, and it should be fine, you know, I mean, 99.999% of people, this is fine, we'll just, but they hear the word cancer, and it casts this long shadow, and everything in their life is affected, and they start to get their affairs in order, and they have their will written up, and they start to punch the bucket list. Why? Because they heard the word cancer. Then you hear other people, I know of other people who've come through our church here and they're, they're here even today and people who get diagnosed with terminal illnesses and are given short time periods to live. And if you met them, they, the next day they're like, meh, whatever. All right, we'll see about that. <laughs> Cancer schmancer. And I'm like, man, you should be like taking this more seriously. Nope. Why? Because they're at a place, the Lord has positioned them in a place where something that would, from another season, carry the potential to cast this overwhelmingly ominous shadow doesn't have that power. There's a grace on them. Amen? So we position ourselves, I just said that, it's just uh, we've got to understand seasons. That's why this time, that's why the anointing that was on the tribe of Issachar is so important for us today. 
that we understand the seasons we're in. If you've ever stood in your backyard and you've taken note of where the sun moves and what, uh, where the shadows are during different times of year, we built the greenhouse this year and we were conscious of that, okay? Well, we know where the light comes from. We know that during the winter, the sun moves over that corner of the sky. And so we've got to build accordingly. We've got to understand that no matter what season we're in, things need to grow. No matter what season we're in, we need to position ourselves so that the shadows that get longer and longer as the days get shorter and shorter, that we're still not blocked by the things of this world. Just a couple more things on shadows. On a mountaintop, the only thing casting shadows is you. Now, y'all are going to hate this because nobody wants to be bothered when they're on the mountaintop. Nobody wants to be talked down to. Nobody wants to be corrected, rebuked, or just juked or anything else. I just made that one up, but it's, it's, it's real. Nobody wants conviction because they've arrived. I'm on top of the world. It's like, don't touch this. Like, I made it here. Y'all are still trying to get up, but I, let me tell you how it's done. The only thing casting a shadow on the tippy top of a mountain is you. And as Frank and John reminded me between services, the only way to avoid that is to get low. To get low. The lower you get, the less of a shadow you cast. Some of you are taking pride in how far you can throw a shadow because you've been on a mountain. And the Lord's not interested in that. In fact, we see Moses coming down with instructions to cover the glory so as to not put off or kill or offend the people that he was sent to lead. Now, I wonder if we have some leaders in the room who, rather than a posture of pride about what they've seen and what they've experienced and the seventh realm of heaven they've been to. Uh-huh. I wonder if we had some leaders in the room who would be humble enough to say, God forbid I ever cast a shadow. God forbid anyone I lead ever stands in the shadow of anything other than the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus. On a mountaintop, the only thing casting a shadow is you, but in a valley, the only thing shining a light is you. When we accept Jesus, the light of the world, the light of the world, the light that came out of Nazareth, the light that was sent to shine is embedded within us. We become the carriers. This is the lamp. And no matter how dark the valley is, darkness can only exist in a place where light is blocked. And so if that light is within you, saints, that light should provide visibility and clarity and revelation to people around you. If it's not, it's blocked. And we should be taking inventory of our lives to find out what it is that's preventing the world from seeing the light in us. Okay, last thing. Okay, in a valley... The two greatest shadows, the two greatest shadows are from the last mountain and the next one. 
And I believe that there's this chronic condition among believers today that we have this uncanny ability to think back on the glory days. We have this, we have this, this propensity to weep like the old men who stood before the rebuilt temple in Haggai because what they see with their eyes pales in comparison to the former glory. But sometimes things aren't all we remember them up to be. Sometimes the glory days, there was nothing different except you just had a little bit more hair in the right places. You know what I'm saying? And, and I, I, I get this burden as a pastor that, that the Lord is calling us forward. The Lord is calling us into this new thing, whatever that is. And it's going to require things that we give up and let go of. It's going, to be, it's going to require things that even that were done right from our past to be let go of. Because the right thing in the wrong time, Issachar, is no longer the right thing. The right thing after its expiration date is no longer the right thing. So, we got to go because watch this. We're, we're going to wrap this up. Here we go. Uh, where am I? Oh, my word, we are not far enough here. Okay, we're going to go real fast. Put your seatbelt on. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because there is no evil? No, because you're with me. If you're writing things down, get this. Presence of God, the presence of God does not equal the absence of evil. The presence of God equals the absence of fear. It does not equal the absence of evil. In fact, as I was telling in the first service, I would, I would uh, propose to you that some of the greatest establishment of Satan's throne is actually within the crucible of our encounters with the Lord. I think Satan shows up to church every morning. I think he gets here before many of you. I think that he loves it here because... Because he's, he's found a people, he's found a church, a, a, a group of people who have learned to let both things coexist. They have learned to walk in a world with one leg on each side of the fence. And if anybody's ever been there, that is not comfortable. So I would, I would challenge you if, you, if you can liken any area of your life to like the Heathcliff scene with the angel on one shoulder and the demon on the other, and they're both telling you things to do. Again, take inventory. Where is it that I, that I continue to entertain, even if I don't always obey the enemy? Where is it that I have continued to entertain thoughts, temptations, distractions that are not of the Lord? The presence of God does not equal the absence of evil. Sometimes we think, well, as long as I'm showing up to church, as long as I'm doing my ministry, as long as I'm checking my boxes, as long as I'm whatever... No, that becomes Satan's playground. That becomes clay for him to mold and shape. Because while we can retain certain properties that, that are reminiscent of religion and church, the real heart of the matter is what's at stake. The presence of God equals no fear. That's why we have no fear, because you are with me. That's another undercurrent of messages over the last like eight months you are with me. And how the presence of God, what does it mean? It means that just because there's evil here doesn't mean I have to fear it. 
Pastor John, our elders, our deliverance team, are staring down demonic things in the face on a weekly basis. And there's no fear. Why? Because you don't show up to one of those without the Lord. You don't show up without being prayed up. You don't show up without, and Pastor John, half the time, like, he and I are sitting down. I'm eating a snack. I'm like, you want something? He's like, no, I've got a session coming up. I'm like, okay, you want a snack? I've got Pop-Tarts. Always. No, I'm fasting. Why are you fasting? Because some only come out with prayer and fasting. Thank you. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You know what's ironic about that? I love this, but what's so ironic about it, and again, props to Pastor John for the props. He just happened to have a staff in his not office um, because we don't have offices, but um, he had this and ran and got it for me, and it's awesome. It's perfect. Uh, Rick David made this before he passed, and I love it because it reminds me of him. But the crazy thing about the rod and the staff that are so comforting, so, so comforting. How many of y'all grew up and you were comforted when you saw your dad's belt? When you heard it come off, it's coming through the belt loops. All the studs are like hitting, tinkling on the way out. It's like, I don't know. I don't know. Who got beat with a studded belt? Somebody in here did. It's for you. But I, I want to just talk about this for a second because I think it's incredibly counterintuitive that the tools of discipline would be the very thing that brings comfort. Well, it would be if you're seeing, if you're seeing everything through the filters of this world. If you're seeing discipline through the filter of abuse. If you're seeing correction through the filter of, of anger instead of the father saying, I discipline the ones I love. I correct the ones I love. My sons, my daughters, I discipline them. We all see the pictures of the shepherd, don't we, with the, like, and he's, like, he's got that, like, really soft, like, face on, like, and he's, like, standing there with his sheep. You know, he's so, like, just, like, mild and meek with the, when he's got the staff right here. I want to see the ones where he's just whipping the sheep with the staff because that's really what the rod was about. You know the staff had the hook on it. You know what the hook was for, right? Not just so you had a little extra on your candy cane. Not just the extra, okay? There was a hook on the staff for what I affectionately call the yank back. So when the sheep got too close to the ledge, yank back. When the sheep wandered a little too close to the lion's den, yank back. When the sheep wasn't listening, when you called it by name, out comes the staff, overcomes the hook, and you are pulled back before you make an absolute train wreck out of your life. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Why? Because I'm not living in the fear, not just of the valley of the shadow of death, but I'm not living in fear because I'm walking with a good, good shepherd who will pull me back who will do what feels like a little bit of harm to me, a little bit of inconvenience to me, a little bit of restriction, a little bit of parameter, a little bit of, God forbid, boundaries in my life to prevent me from completely, like, going straight to hell in a handbasket. Your rod and your staff. Whoop, ching, 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 ching. Whoops. Ugh. 
okay, I feel safer now. I wonder, if, I wonder what would happen if we became a people that were comforted by the idea of correction, of rebuke, of discipline. I wonder, I wonder what would look different about the way we raise our kids if discipline wasn't a bad word. I wonder what would happen if we stopped reading over that verse that says, spare the rod, spoil the child. Because you could say, if you spare the rod, you just lose the sheep. I had somebody call me this week, and um, they had a couple questions and needed to talk about some pretty heavy family stuff. And they said, Pastor Zach, um, what is his Providence Church's uh, policy on church discipline? Well, let me take you to section D, part nine of the policy handbook. And uh, Pastor Karen Eaton wrote this one. She, there, there's even a yank back on her pen. And that's how I know I'm loved. Truth is, we don't have a policy handbook. We have the Bible. And when it comes to discipline in our church, there are all the standard generic, you know, okay, if, you know, if your life is in chaos or dysfunction right now, probably not a good time to be leading, probably not a good time to be running ministry. We're going to have you step back from that. We're going to have you sit and, and receive some counsel. We're going to have you uh, signed up with some accountability. We're going to, you know, somebody's going to be checking in, whatever it is. But, but even that to me feels a little ill-fitting. Even some of the stuff that Paul calls for in the New Testament letters feels ill-fitting. Why? Because they were responses to a, a stubborn people that were refusing to really just be sensitive to the Spirit of God. Because I'll tell you what correction and discipline would look like if we were really, really walking in the Spirit. It would be the simple conversation before things ever got out of hand, before things ever went too far, before we ever went off the rails, it would be the conversation of somebody who loved us and noticed and who said, hey, you've been on my heart. The Lord's put you on my heart. And I'd rather have this conversation now before this turns into that than have the conversation in, in some gossip uh, coffee room later about how I saw this coming Good luck before the Lord if you saw it coming and didn't say anything about it. Good luck before the Lord if I just, I thought it was inappropriate this whole time. Shut up in that room and open your mouth in this room and get before your brother or your sister in the Lord and say it in love. Say it in love. Love somebody enough. That, that the Holy Spirit can bring correction, can bring rebuke, can bring realignment, if that word sounds a little nicer to you. God, may the rod and the staff that comforts the sheep, may it be present and manifested in the hearts and the conversations of your people. Okay. Your rod and your staff. Here we go. You anoint my head with oil. And I want to talk about this for a second. Because um, I heard this somewhere years ago, and I love it. And so I'm going to just keep pulling from it. And, no, yes, I am. I'm sorry. 
I'm just, I'm skipping all over the place. Listen, do things in order. You know what I'm saying? Verse 5 says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thank you for my orderly wife. Uh, this is important, guys. We do need to talk about this because this was not just any normal, ordinary table. In Hebrew, this table was specifically a sacred, a table for sacred use, a king's table, okay, which was very different than like a normal table, all right? It's different than like the table that the widow makes and puts in the upper room for the prophet, I think. Uh, it's been a while since I was in that Hebrew, but it, th- this table is a king's table that you wouldn't come and sit at without invitation. But it was also a table where you were not in a position to come and actually do anything but sit down and eat. I was telling the first service, you, you, you couldn't even push the Q-tips through the cheese cubes at the king's table. There was somebody for that. Okay, there were artisans brought out of Lebanon, you know, to make sure. So, so the toothpicks, what did I say? You definitely can't shove the Q-tips through the cheese cubes. Q-tips, toothpicks, same thing. Keys, little fingers, whatever you got. You know what I'm saying? Just stop shoving anything through cheese cubes at the king's table, okay? The point is, you're not qualified to do anything but show up with your invitation and your RSVP and say, I'm on the list. And then you come and sit down, and the king, the king would see to it that you were fed. And this is what's crazy. Because David, most historians believe that David wrote this while he was already king. Reflecting back on his time as a shepherd and drawing from it metaphors. Mm, that's right. Metaphors that were applicable. But as a king, to talk about another king who prepared a table for him would be incredibly humbling. Our pride says, no, I want to be the one with the table. I want to be the one that does the calling. I want to be the one that sets the table. I want to be the one that serves. The Martha in us says, I've got to be, I, I, I've got to be at the head of this table. At the only seat that matters so that I'm not the one receiving. So that I'm the one giving. Because not a, not, not a lot of vulnerability is required when you're on the giving end. Ooh. But for David to come, David to come and say, another king has set a table for me, a sacred table. And at that table, I'm just another guy. There may be a seat of honor for me, but it might be right next to somebody who I wouldn't normally sit next to. Amen? Anybody look to your right and left? The other cool thing about that table is the first 19 times it's used in Scripture, it's in reference to the table of showbread in the temple. I just wish somebody with the showbread, with the table where Jesus is embodied, is pictured, is presented as these loaves of bread, this table where it was baked fresh and daily as a symbol of fellowship with all of Israel, with God's people. That's the table. That's the table. It's not just an invitation to a table. It's an invitation to a table in the presence of a king, the holy place. The holy place. But here's what's crazy. For a king to be talking about a table being set for him in the presence of his enemies, you see, there was a context here that would be very real for a military strategy artist like David. Because that's who King David was. And David understood the art of war. And he understood that when you were under attack, when your city was under attack, 
by a foreign army that they would come and lay siege to a city and they would build up ramparts against the walls. And if they couldn't get through the gates, that they would just prevent anybody else from getting out. And it took a little longer, but the same result would happen. Those people would get hungry. The food would run out. First, the government would ration everything they had. And then they would eat the donkeys and then they would eat the horses. And there are cases in scripture where cities resorted to cannibalism in order to stay alive while under siege. In the presence of my enemies, you prepare a table before me. You see, some of us, we sing, it may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. We, we sing it, but in our hearts, we're so focused on what it is that has blocked us from the light. We're so focused on the shadow that we're in. We're so focused on the thing that seeks to ensnare us inside our own city that we will end up dying of starvation. That's what Satan longs to do, to cut you off from the sustenance. Thou preparest the table for me in the presence of my enemies. This is crazy. This is unthinkable. This is a slap in the face to every warring nation that would come against the people of God. Say, what? What are you going to do? You're going to surround my city? You think that matters to me? There is a king of all kings that sets a table for us. There is a king of all kings who prepares a meal for me, who prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And this is the other thing that's crazy about David saying these words. That David, when the enemy shows up, David understood, you've got to be on point. You've got to be on guard. The one time he stayed home when the rest of the kings went to war is his great sin with Bathsheba. If anybody understood that when go time means go time, okay, we're going to war. And yet, still, in the presence of my enemies. Wait, are you saying I shouldn't get up and go fight? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying if the Lord has prepared a table for you to nourish you and sustain you and provide for you in the midst of what feels like an all-out attack, then you better stop. You better sit. You better rest and you better receive. That's the crazy thing about sheep. They can't protect themselves. Have you ever seen a sheep fight off a lion or a tiger or a bear? Oh, my. Have you ever seen it? No, you don't see it. Sheep can't fight, except you know what sheep can fight? Other sheep. Like I said, I could probably do a whole message just on this right here. A little bit of research, I found this tragic story of this, a whole Algerian misled generation of young men that have created this underground blood sport of sheep fighting. And it's like rooster fighting or dog fighting, but it's sheep fighting. And they put them in a pen and they fight to the death. Why? Because sheep will fight sheep, in case you hadn't noticed. Sheep will fight sheep. They will bite sheep. They will kick sheep. But when it comes to the real threat, you better just have a seat at the table. You see, it's the shepherd that fights off the lion. 
It's the shepherd that slings the stone at the bear. It's the shepherd that really understands who our real enemy is. And when the scriptures tell us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, flesh and blood are just the other sheep in the room. The principalities of darkness are those things that we really are wrestling against. And we don't stand a chance without our shepherd. So when he prepares a table before you in the presence of your enemies, sometimes the Lord's like, I just need you guys out of the way so I can go fight this battle, so I can take care of this. I need you because every time you engage in this, you keep striking out at the wrong thing. You, you keep fighting. You wage entire wars against shadows. Shadows! Simply because of where you are seasonally. Lord, help us. You anoint my head with oil. So this is what I heard a while back, that every shepherd would have their own proprietary blend of oil. Every shepherd would, would make a mixture of herbs and spices and oils and fragrances uh, to, to uh, work against the specific parasites and pests and whatever else was going on. And so in that region, wherever they were. And so... What would happen is a sheep would get cut or they would have a parasite or they would have a something. And so a shepherd would, would work up this blend of oil and anoint that sheep's wounds, would anoint that sheep's face, the head, whatever, to, to keep away the bugs, would anoint that sheep's hurt places or skin irritations or whatever else. But the thing about that oil was it was specific to the shepherd. And you could smell on that sheep to whom it belonged. You could smell the fragrance of the anointing indicated ownership. And I believe with my whole heart that this morning when we say anointing fall on me, Lord anoint me. When we say, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runneth over, not only are we acknowledging the fact that he is a never-ending, never-run-dry kind of God, that he is a bottomless well of life and of glory and of source, what we're accepting and embracing is the ownership. And that hopefully, no matter what room we walk in, that it is clear to whom we belong that they can smell it on us before we ever get there. The glory of God. Anointing. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet. And I'll close with this right here. Surely goodness and mercy. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I always, every time I, I, I read this, I always think of, I, as a kid, you know, you see it, it's on a bookmark somewhere in your first Bible or whatever, this little thing. And uh, you see it, and I always envisioned like three little angels, like three little fairy godmother type little jobs floating around behind you, following you around, goodness, surely, and mercy. And they were all just cute little you know, just doing cute little things. Come to find out, it wasn't that kind of Shirley. But I still think of it that way because Grammy's name is Shirley and she's so sweet and cute and she's just like, like wistfully. But you know what's crazy about this, this phrase? 
the goodness and mercy. By the way, that word surely actually is perhaps better translated only, which I love. Only goodness and mercy. Only goodness and mercy. But that word where we get following and then like light little happy following, that word really means to be run down, to be pursued in a nearly violent sense, to be chased, to be run down by goodness and mercy. It starts to put a different spin on it, doesn't it? Like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So this isn't just this thing that I'm just like, oh, look, it's so cute. No, it's like, it's like God sends out of heaven goodness and mercy to chase you every day of your life to pursue you and run down those fleshly instincts in the street. Goodness and mercy, the two things that we, that, that seem so neutral and and, and pacifistic, and yet here they are chasing me down. What to ensure? Number one, that they're the only things chasing me. Number two, because when they catch up with me, I find out what it is that's really on the Father's heart, that I dwell in his house forever and ever and ever and ever. Somebody texted me between the services and said it was surely, it was, it was surely goodness and mercy that pursued the prodigal via the pig pen. Goodness and mercy didn't feel good or merciful in that moment. But you may be in this room this morning feeling like your life looks more like a pig pen than it does the Father's house but he's running after you. He's running after you. And you hear the footsteps behind you and you think it's the hounds of hell. But I'm gonna tell you something this morning, saints. It's the hounds of heaven. And their names are goodness and mercy. And they will pursue you and they will bring you to the Father's house where you will dwell. We're going to pray, and I'm going to let everybody out of here. But before we go, if there's anybody in this place this morning, and you are in a valley season, you are in a valley season where it feels like every dark thing that has ever come against you is at its larger-than-life moment that the shadows cast across your soul are all-consuming. If you're here this morning, saints, and it feels like things that maybe at another season in your life, they didn't even really bother me. They didn't really even affect me that much. You know, I never really thought about it that much. And now all of a sudden, it just feels like I can't even take another breath because of the weight of that shadow upon me. Saints, if that's you, I, wanna, I, I don't want you to leave this room until we have an opportunity to pray for you, until we have an opportunity to get around with you and come into agreement with what heaven is saying, even about the valley moments. 
there were some really, really cool things happening at this altar in first service. And, and I'm asking, I know it's late, and you're free to go in a few minutes. <laughs> but before you do, if that's you, step out of your seat and meet me down here this morning. there's anybody else in the room there's anybody else in the room yea though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death you see this isn't a call to necessarily come out of the valley this isn't some magic trick where we pray the right prayer and you're suddenly whisked up to the next mountaintop nope this is real life valley seasons but it's in these moments when the Lord stepped forward just a few more steps. Yeah, just because there's some folks coming down the aisle and I want to get them down at the altar here. We've got plenty of room. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's good. It's good. It's in these moments, it's in these seasons. When that which the enemy has assigned seeks to block the light, however, by design, that lamp within your soul begins to glow brighter. That lamp that is the presence of God within us as sons and daughters of God, if you have asked Jesus into your heart, and it starts there, if you have asked the Lord into your heart, then that lamp you carry begins to illuminate the darkness around you. It begins to eradicate the shadows of death. It begins to, to neutralize the power of fear by an awareness of the presence of God. Is there anybody else this morning? Okay. I'm going to have Pastor John and our prayer team, our pastors and elders people I personally know and and we have vetted very seriously I'm going to ask if y'all would step out of your seats and join us down here at this altar and I want to just kind of move through this group of people and pray and let's just believe together let's come into agreement together that that when when all hell breaks loose that that doesn't mean it's time to fight sometimes it means it's time to sit down it's time to come back to the table. It's time to come back to that place of communion. It's time to come back to that body of Christ that was broken for us. It's time to come back into the holy place and to rest, to come back into that atmosphere of glory, Shekinah glory, and let the Lord go to work. To release the prayer team, let's go ahead and begin to pray over these folks. And even Jesus, when Jesus, I Jesus. take a walk yeah. through the valley, shadows of death and darkness all around me, 
speak to the shadows and that which stands between us and the Lord. We come with the authority that the Father has put on us as sons and daughters. We come with the light from the light of the world that was within us. And we ask, Lord, that you would use us in these valley moments that you would use us in a place where there is no light other than that which is within us. And that you would begin to bring the transformation that we experience as the people of God, that you would begin to bring it to those around us, those who are stuck in those places, in those low places. Lord, I thank you for the mountaintops. God, I thank you for for the things, God, even that cast a shadow in our lives now, the things of the past, the things of the future the unmet expectations that are still ahead of us, those hopes, those plans, those goals that seem like right now all they are is a shadow blocking us from you. But Lord, I pray that from this place that we would experience that that light value, that we would experience the light of the world illuminating the path of our life. Lord, we love you and we thank you for what you're doing. We thank you and we surrender to it, God. We give you the glory and the honor. This is Pastor Zach and you've been listening to HPC Sermon Notes. Love you guys. God bless you and have the best day of your life.